Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be with you again today. So today, here's what we're up to. We are wrapping up our series called Living Together, which has been on First Timothy. And in fact, it's been advertised over the last few weeks as a closer look at First Timothy. Um, but as we head into this last week, and as I was preparing the final sermon series, I had concluded that I'm pretty sure we've missed the mark on a closer look. Um, and instead, what I think we've ended up doing is we have taken a more distant look at First Timothy. And here's what I mean by that. Here at Revolution, we typically alternate um, in our teaching between two types of sermon series, um, topical ones and expository ones. And topical series are ones that begin with um, an issue or a theme, for example, evangelism or relationships or most recently spiritual disciplines. And then we take that theme and we seek out wisdom from Scripture on the topic. Um, but an expository series is one that begins with a section or a book of the Bible and then seeks to contextualize that piece of the Bible and then kind of preach it through, as it were. And this series on First Timothy was initially supposed to be um, expository, but as we've gone through it, it hasn't really worked out that way. Now, some of you are already like, why? Please don't. Please don't do this. I'm going to, just for a minute. There have been reasons. There have been decent reasons why we've done that. And the biggest of those is that it turns out that I think an expository approach to a letter like First Timothy in particular can prove to be really dangerous for a church. When we read this letter, uh, we encounter a lot of very direct advice that Paul is instructing his friend Timothy to share with Jesus' followers in the city of Ephesus, which is where Timothy's going. And this advice includes guidance on things like how women should wear their hair and what sorts of sermons should be shared or not shared, what kinds of food people are supposed to eat, even... Um, Paul even name drops a, a, a couple of folks that he says um, should be handed over to Satan in this letter, which I'm not sure what to do with that exactly. And it's all very particular, right? But in addition to being particular, it's also somebody else's mail. And the danger, I think, is that if we work straight through this letter, we simply try to read every instruction to the Ephesians as an instruction to us, and we're not only going to end up in a pretty weird spot ourselves, we're also going to end up in a place that is even at odds with some of the things that Paul tells other churches in other letters in other cities. And the truth is that Paul's wisdom in his letters is not always consistent. And that makes sense, I think, if we remind ourselves that each one of these letters is meant for a different group of people and written in response to a different set of problems. But the second danger is that if we step too far back from the letter, from his instructions here to Timothy, we might not be able to see why we should bother reading the letter at all. We're not Ephesians, right? So what can we even learn from it? So the danger, of course, is that this series turned out to be a too distant look at 1 Timothy to matter to any of us. What we all wish we had it was a new letter, right, called Annapolitans, written just to us. But that's not going to happen. And so we have these 25 minutes here to try and learn what we can. And here's what I think that is as we wrap up. Paul needs Timothy. He needs the Ephesians. And he also wants us to understand 
that the messengers matter. The messengers matter, not always for the reasons that we think. Now, there are four examples of messengers in this letter. And I think it can bear real fruit for us to consider each one. So that's what we're going to do today. And I'm going to tell you at the start that our goal isn't going to try to be to figure out which ones are or which ones are not, like the good messengers and the bad messengers. All of that is closer look thinking. And that's what we're, we're avoiding today. Instead, what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and find a right distance, uh, a right distance answer that can tie together all of these things and hopefully help us to see a bigger picture here about what it means for us to be a genuine and an effective witness of our faith. So we don't want to get too close. We don't want to run away either. What we want to do is just keep looking. So we're going to do that. Four messengers and help you get a sense of time. I've already been told 10.55, mandatory wrap-up time today, or the kids' workers are going to revolt. So we got to stay on the script. So first messenger, the first messenger in First Timothy is Paul himself. He writes the letter, and he also makes sure that Timothy is seeing him as he reads the letter. And what does Paul want Timothy to notice about himself? Well, the first chapter he writes this. He writes, The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I received mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience as an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. Now, there are two key things here, I think, right? The first is that Paul makes sure that Timothy isn't elevating him, isn't elevating Paul or forgetting the sins of Paul's past. He wants Timothy to see that he's flawed. He isn't just someone who has made honest mistakes either, that he was in fact the foremost of the mistake makers once upon a time. And he even once set himself in literal opposition to Jesus' ministry and persecuted the leaders of the early church. So he wants Timothy to see his brokenness. But the second key that he says here is that Jesus' purpose in showing Paul mercy is to display God's patience as an example to the world. His past sins may have been forgotten by God in this, in this context, but they shouldn't be forgotten by Timothy. And the reason isn't because he wants Timothy to feel disgusted by him or to be ashamed of him as his friend. The reason is because that gap, right, between who Paul was and who Timothy knows Paul to be now is evidence of the purpose and the power of Jesus' forgiveness and love of him. It matters that there is that big gap. So I think the idea here is that the right kind of Christian messenger is the one in the world is one who sees their flaws as proof of God's reach and his passion for us. Those flaws don't need to be erased or written over. It's altogether better for those flaws to be redeemed. Paul is a sinner, right? But his story points outward so that other sinners can discover how much they're loved. So that's messenger one, Paul. We want to see his flaws. The second messenger here is Timothy, the person who's actually being sent to Ephesus to tell people stuff. 
Now, I said in week one that one of the quirks of the names that we've given to the epistles or the, the collection of early Christian correspondence we find in the New Testament is that at least the ones written by Paul, but not the ones written by anybody else, the ones written by Paul are titled according to whom they are addressed. So 1 Timothy isn't written to the church in Ephesus. The letter Ephesians is written to the church in Ephesus. Instead, it's written to Paul's friend who he has sent to Ephesus to teach those people something in person. So what kind of a messenger does Paul want Timothy to be? Well, he actually talks about how Timothy ought to conduct himself at many points in the letter. and even includes several helpful poems that presumably Timothy also knows, so he's like reminding him. He also includes some song lyrics. You know, maybe you've sent messages to your friends reminding them of song lyrics. That's something that Paul does here. But what I want to zero in on is the closing wisdom in the letter. And this is what Paul writes. He says, But as for you, Timothy, man of God, shun all this foolishness. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which you will bring about at the right time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So if Paul wants Timothy to see his own failings in order to perceive his sincerity, prove his sincerity. What he tells Timothy is that the proof of Timothy's sincerity to the Ephesians is going to be his faithfulness. And this is one of those moments that I was referencing earlier where if we get too close, we read the letter too closely, we get ourselves into trouble in situations like this one. Because, right, why is it that Paul gets to be the utmost of sinners? Right? while Timothy has to be without spot or blame. Aren't those two bits of advice at odds? Are we supposed to show our flaws? Are we supposed to be faithful? I think what we can infer is that the difference here in the two situations is this. Paul already has Timothy's trust. Timothy knows him, loves him, respects him. And what Paul wants is he wants to make sure that Timothy sees God as the real reason that he loves Paul so much. But Timothy is going into a situation in Ephesus where he's not yet trusted, where nobody knows him. And if he is going to go there and provide evidence of something similar as God of God, evidence of God as the source of this great love, that Timothy's going to need to win the Ephesians over, and he's going to do that by living faithfully. Now, again, you may think, like, so he's a faker? Like, he's just supposed to go and, like, put on a happy face for everybody? Not exactly, because, again, we need to remember the context that he's going into. The Ephesians don't think they have any problems. That's the key thing. They think that the legalistic piety that they have adopted and that the material wealth that they've accumulated as a community, that all of that stuff goes hand in hand to prove God's favor for them. It's all evidence that they're doing the right things. And Timothy is heading into town with the express purpose of trying to like turn that whole apple cart upside down. So the question is why should they listen to him? 
Things between them and God are good. And so what Paul says is that the key for Timothy, the key to his approach, is to be above reproach when he gets there. Because he needs to show the Ephesians that this upside-down way of God's kingdom is actually more Christ-like in the end than the one that they are currently pursuing. So although the advice here is different, right? See Paul's flaws, but see Timothy's purity. The reason in each case is the same. It's to shift the audience's focus off of the individual and back on to the God their life is supposed to be pointing towards. And so this gives us two pieces, I think, of the larger puzzle here. Messengers need to be both flawed and faithful. And together, those parts begin to form this bigger picture, not of a perfect church. That's not the thing we're here to testify to. The picture that they're forming is one of a patient and also an effective God. So, we're, we're cruising, right? We got two messages. You know there's only two more. Like, we're halfway. Number three. This is a hard one. And it's hard because it's almost impossible to tell anything about this if you don't step back from that closer look in order to try and see the letter as a whole. But the answer to who is messenger number three is the Ephesians themselves. The Ephesians. What we've seen underneath the instructions that Paul gives Timothy is that the Ephesians are sick, they don't know it, and the real trouble is that they don't seem to realize that this sickness in them is visible to the world around them. They become so like single-minded, so myopic, fixating on what Paul calls, calls myths and, and endless genealogies, which Paul says just promote controversial speculations. They fixate on that to the extent that they are no longer advancing God's work in the city. And what is God's work in Ephesus? Well, it is for, according to Paul, everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The purpose of the church in Ephesus or anywhere is to spread a message, right? To be messengers. But in Ephesus, this pursuit has turned, instead of being outward, which is where a messenger goes, right? The pursuit has turned entirely inwards. Where instead of praying for their city or caring for their neighbors, what Paul says is that they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So it's not that managing the behaviors of brothers and sisters is of no value. It's that the purpose of that management is supposed to be to reveal God to people. To help people see that God's creation is good, that God's creation is worth our gratitude, and that there is real salvation and real inclusion available for people who are willing to aim their lives at him instead of aiming them at themselves. And so at this very moment, right, the rest of Ephesus, the rest of the people in this town, are looking at the Ephesian church for a witness to who God is. But the Ephesian church isn't paying attention to their visibility. And the result is something that's both sad to Paul and also something that's proving to be dangerous. Now there is a version of this sermon where we take a big detour 
right here. Where we look at our own failing witness as Christians in our own country and culture. We talk about how our own infighting and our own greed, our own hypocrisy, our own vanity are actually obscuring the light of Christ in our communities. And I will be honest in saying that I really want to go on that rant. Right. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Please do. And here's why. Here's why. Because as I'm contemplating writing that rant, which I would need to do to keep us within 1055, <laughs> I realized that it might make me feel righteous, but it's not going to get the job done. And that's because I'm visible too. And the more important point of my visibility is to reveal a story of hope and forgiveness rather than one of judgment. So instead, instead, we'll just imagine the rant, but we can talk about it later. <laughs> instead, what we're going to do is we're going to the last messenger in First Timothy. And the last messenger is Jesus. Now, Paul is flawed. Timothy is faithful. The Ephesians are visible. And Jesus is self-evident. What does that mean here? Well, some of you, if you still had paper Bibles, nobody has paper Bibles anymore, and now you get tricked. Yes! So you didn't get tricked earlier. Because I cited a passage from 1 Timothy 6, and I cut a verse out. And this is what it reads like in full. He writes, But as for you, man of God, shun all this, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ which will bring about at the right time he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So the message that we have all been charged with as messengers is inescapably the story of Jesus. This is the thing that we're here to share, whether it's through our flaws or our faithfulness or our visibility. And the reason is because Jesus was himself a messenger. And whoever or wherever we are, what we are is we are extensions in this chain leading back to him. And then through him to God. And the difference between him and us, and the reason that we need him, in fact, to be the one to tell God's story, is because Jesus alone was a self-evident revelation of God. He communicates God fully and truly and clearly. And he does that because he is God's very son. And in all of that, he sets an example for us as his brothers and his sisters in Christ. And he also makes a way for us in that we don't have to be the ones to point perfectly to God ourselves. Which is the thing we won't succeed in trying to do. We can't. And that's, I think, what ultimately makes the legalism of the Ephesians so insidious for them. But what we can do is this. By pointing to him instead, the good work is still done. 
That's something that we can do because Jesus was and Jesus is still here with us. And so when you read that passage a moment ago that I had obscured from you, you might have wondered, as I did, what is that good confession that's made before Pontius Pilate? Jesus is a messenger. Presumably he's shared a message with Pilate. What is it? So let's do a little research together, right? Jesus' conversation with the Roman governor in Judea is at, le- is at least mentioned in all four of the Gospels, but it gets the most oxygen in the Gospel of John, and here's what we find there. John writes, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now this is it. This is the most detailed account we have of this conversation. But... I don't know about you, but as I'm reading it, it doesn't sound very much like a confession to me. Jesus doesn't actually say very much at all. He asks Pilate who told him he was the king of the Jews. He says to Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. And then he says he came into the world to testify to the truth. So when Paul says or reminds his readers of this moment, what is he getting at? I think what Paul sees in the account of Jesus before Pilate is that this man, Pilate, who is the chief local authority of the greatest empire in the history of the world up to this point, that this man is not inclined to see Jesus as anything other than a rabble-rouser, right? He's a bit sarcastic in this version of the story, right? And he's more than a bit unkind. And he wants Jesus to explain himself But instead, Jesus just is himself. You say that I am a king, he replies, that I'm a messenger. And when I said that Jesus is self-evident, what I meant was that the message that he is here to share is clear to everyone who encounters him personally, whether they accept it or not. When we seek to be messengers of him, our job is not to perfectly explain him. Our job is to offer people an introduction. And Jesus can take things over from there. Now there's an interesting coda to the story of Jesus and Pilate that's worth sharing. Right? When the soldiers are preparing to nail Jesus' body to the cross, John writes... That, quote, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. And the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. The message got across. And so as we close all of this out, the question is, what can we really do with it? My case today is that 1 Timothy asks us to put all of these puzzle pieces together. The kinds of messengers that the church needs are flawed and faithful together. And they know that they are visible to others outside of the world of the church. And they point with all of themselves to a Savior who is in and of himself self-evident. And I think that we as a church can do a better job of embracing all of these things. This past week, I got a phone call out of the blue from a former student of mine from back in my teaching days. And we were friends and we were walking buddies when he was in college. We went on a road trip once, but we haven't spoken in four or five years. He lives in another state now. And he called because his life has become a bit shipwrecked and he needed somebody to listen. And when we talked, I pointed out to him that he was now the same age, at 28, that I was when we first met. And this made both of us feel dizzy, is how it made us feel. But as we reflected on our relationship together, he said something very kind. He said that the reason he felt comfortable reaching out wasn't because as a teacher, as a 28-year-old, I seemed to have my act together, which is what I was trying to do at the time. He said it was because when we were friends in the years after that, he knew that I didn't, but that I was trying. And I am not making the case this morning that I am a great example of a messenger because I'm not. But I thought I would share this because what matters to other people is that we're sincere. Both about ourselves and also sincere about the things that we believe. And the church doesn't grow when we behave perfectly and when we fight for all the right things. And the church grows when we trust that upside-down lives can point to an upside-down kingdom. And we can do our best to live that way, to live those upside-down lives together with our flaws, and with our struggling efforts towards faithfulness, and with awareness of our visibility and how the people of our community see us and I think that a community that these kinds of values of being flawed, of being faithful, taking responsibility for our visibility, a community that these kinds of values can forge is one that is a worthwhile messenger and is a worthwhile witness. I'll pray for us. I haven't looked at the clock, but I think we're on track.